저한텐 세상이 수수께끼 같아요. 나 모르겠어? 우리 어릴 때 같은 동네 살았잖아. 내 부탁 하나만 들어줄래? 벤이라고 합니다. 젊은 나이에 저렇게 살수 있지? 젊은 나이라도 돈이 많나 보지. 위대한 게 집이네. 재밌네. 애인만 있으면 나 뭐든지 해. <웃음> 희열을 느끼는 거죠. 여기서 베이스가 느껴져. 뼛속까지 울리는 베이스. 하나를 골라 태우는 거예요. 마치 처음부터 존재하지 않았던 것처럼 사라지게 할수 있어요. 거기에 옳고 그런 건 없어요. 자연의 도둑만 있지. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Heroic Purgatory, uh, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John, and with me, as always, my co-host, Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? Um, I'm fine, John. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good. This episode is coming a bit late because I had COVID last week, so I was not able to record uh, and did not feel like uh, forcing through that. So the, our listeners will get this episode a week later, but I think that's okay. Uh, the main thing is you recovered, or you're recovering. I am recovering, and it was it was a, a a bad couple of weeks for a lot of reasons. I had I had a root canal. That's probably where I got COVID. COVID. Mm. Uh, and then both both my pets, uh, as I, as I was recovering for COVID, both my pets got sick. So I had to uh, I had to take care of that <laughs> as well. So it's been a very busy few weeks, but uh, things are looking better now. So. Hopefully things will get back to normal soon. Yeah, hope the pets are doing well. Yeah, so I'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. All right, so this week's episode, we'll be talking about Lee Chang Dong's 2018 film, Burning, adapted from a short story by Haruki Murakami, our second Murakami for this season. However, before we get into that, we'll jump into our usual seg- segment. We'll talk about our media and cultural consumption for... Uh, for the time since our last recording. So, Jason, why don't you why don't you start? Uh, so, my cul- cultural consumption since we last talked has been very diverse. Um, it's included watching a few French films and some Asian films. Uh, number one on my list is The Horseman on the Roof, a 1995 historical romance set in 19th century France. Um, it stars Olivier Martinez and Juliette Binoche. They portray an honourable Italian resistance fighter and a French noblewoman, respectively, and he escorts her to her husband through a countryside riven by a cholera epidemic. It's a very beautiful-looking and very romantic old-fashioned Who, Who's epic. the director on that? I think I've seen that. Uh, I cannot remember who the director is. Okay. 
Yeah, but uh, yeah, like lots of um, scenes of horseback riding and a couple action scenes. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, some of the best uh, moments in the film do take place, as the title suggests, on rooftops, as Martinez's character escapes mobs of people driven into paranoia uh, by cholera. Uh, another uh, French film I watch is A Heart in Winter. Um, that's from 1992. And that stars Daniel Ortiel and Emmanuel Baer. And essentially it's about a man who repairs violins and a young violinist who falls for him. Uh, the violin repairer is a man without many emotions and is the partner of a, of a vivacious philanderer who has taken Emmanuel Baer's character, uh, a rising musical star, as his mistress. So the rub in this drama is that Ortiel's character cannot feel love, or at least he claims to, and he's using um, the lady to get back at his partner in some sort of twisted game. But I think uh, at the end of the film, uh, he comes to regret his cruelty because he's left alone in the final shot. Uh, I think it could be left to the audience's interpretation. But I find it a very moving sort of um, character drama. And it actually uh, won a lot of awards at the Venice Film Festival, um, such as the Golden Alliance, uh Best Actress Award for Emmanuel Barrett, and uh, Best Screenplay. And it also was tied for a silver line with two other films. Uh, I watched a Hong Kong film uh, called Red Wolf from 1995. I don't know if you've seen that. It sounds familiar, but I the the ti- I mean the title sounds familiar, but you'd have to go on a little bit more about it before I'm sure if I've seen it or not. So uh, Yun Wu Ping uh, directed it, and um, it's kind of like Under Siege in the sense that terrorists take over a ship afloat on the sea. Uh, only this time it's a cruise liner, and you've got an ex-cop who's running security, uh, who has to take them all out. Yeah, it's kind of like the body count is ridiculously high, and there's child in peril, so there's lots of melodrama, but the fight scenes are great, and there's some humor to it. And um, I watched uh, Shinya Tsukamoto's 1991 film uh, Hiroku the Goblin. It's a fun mashup of like a summertime adventure, Japanese mythology and body horror as an archaeologist and a high school student have to seal a tomb full of ancient goblins that they lay underneath a school. Um, I find that the tone is akin to something like Evil Dead 2 Army of Darkness with lots of goofy chase sequences and like homemade Ghostbuster equipments and um, big facial expressions. It's got some great stop motion um, animation, physical effects, and uh, camera movements. So, like, real contrast to um, Tetsuo, the Iron Man, which is much more intense and psychologically scarring. Uh, this one's much easier to get into. And over the course of another week, I watched the early 2000s American B Cinema esque TV show Special Unit 2. It used to run on Sci Fi Channel. And, uh, it's uh, kind of like a low-budget X-Files set in Chicago. Um, it's got that set of a monster of a week, um, which allows for a variety of beasts like lizard men and Medusa to show up. And essentially, every episode ends with the monsters getting blown up by explosives or guns. It's cheap and cheerful, and um, it's powered by its cast, who lift up sort of a repetitive material. Um... The Matsugane Potshot Affair from 2006 uh, is a film by Nobuhiro Yamashita, and it's meant to be an ensemble comedy, but I think the comedy is really dated badly. Um, and there's a streak of misogyny that I found off-putting in it. Um, essentially, it takes place in a town called Matsugane, and like um, it focuses on this family of losers. Um, like The older brother is a cop, 
but he's not very good at his job. The younger brother gets coerced into like um, digging out Yakuza gold from um, an ice lake. And uh, yeah, I just find it really mean-spirited film. I did not laugh once and I was expecting more from it. And uh, the last film I watched was The Stone Tape. Um, have you heard of Nigel Neal? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, you're a sci-fi guy, so I would have expected you to know like the Quake the Mass series. Is it? No, I'm not. It doesn't ring a bell. Okay. So like Quake the Mass was like um, post-World War II BBC drama films, um, black and white, uh, like an American um, investigating supernatural stuff and using science to defeat it. And um, the stone tape, which I remember from childhood, I watched it again. The setup is that a group uh, looking to create a new recording material uh, medium have set up shop in a haunted uh, country estate and they find that some of the masonry may have recorded something supernatural and um, being a bunch of tech people they want to find out what uh, was recorded and it's a very atmospheric film due to the sets and um, the ideas that are flying around about how to extract like the ghosts from the house and it's a great performance by Jane Asher as a psychically sensitive computer expert in a very sexist environment because it's like 1970s and uh, yeah you got like a, a philandering boss who's um, dating all the secretaries um, it's upfront about the ghost stuff like this it all the uh, all the ghosts exists and um it's frightening towards the end when you find out like what's actually recorded on the stone tape and uh probably like the last uh uh cultural highlight of my week was uh dragon's crown on ps vita i finally completed it uh side scrolling beat em up like dungeons and dragons uh, features a gorgeous painterly art style that depicts lost cities ancient temples and pirate coves full of skeletons and lizard men and um orcs and uh it's pretty easy to uh play through it just by mashing the attack button but there is depth to it because it's got different fighting styles due to different characters like warrior sorceress and elf and their unique play styles and uh, each time you complete the game um the level cap goes up and a new area opens so I'll probably revisit the game at some point in the future, but right now I've gone back to studying Japanese. And those have been my sort of cultural highlights sort of, uh, since we last talked. All right. Yeah, that's a bit... Uh, I mean, it's been a while, but it's, uh, it sounds like a fun few weeks for you. It were, they were not fun for me at all because of COVID. And uh, I, was, I was hoping that because I am fully protected, uh, and I also am not... I don't know, I'm not in a position where I come in contact with people that much that I would probably be spared the worst of it. But it wasn't, it was, it was not bad enough for me to warrant a trip to the hospital, not even close. It was never, I, was, I never felt like my life was in danger or anything like that. But at the same time, it was not a pleasant experience to actually have it. It was like constant fever for three days, not very high fever, although one time it got high, but I don't know. It was uh, it was an annoying experience. It was that's that's I think that's the key phrase. It was annoying. It wasn't. It was never that scary. It was never you know uh, where I felt scared or threatened in any way. But he was just constantly annoyed by it, and that's I think that sums it up very very accurately. Yeah. Uh, I watched so while while I was having COVID, it was a lot of YouTube and a lot of football. Uh, those were to my comfort my uh my to comfort i didn't feel like the diving into a movie or a serious tv show so i just browsed youtube for hours on end i did get to watch this was right before i found out that i had covid i watched after you mentioned last last week mickey and nikki oh mikey and nikki yeah mikey and nikki sorry uh it was a very good film and i kind of knew that i would enjoy it 
uh, after your description, it is sounds like the kind of film that would be right up my alley. I didn't, it was all right. I didn't, you know, it, it wasn't something extraordinary that I'm going to remember forever, but it was, a, it was, it was an enjoyable film. And I think uh, one thing that brought it down for me, it's, it's impossible to take, um, what's his name? Uh, Peter Falk. Uh, Peter Falk. To, uh, to watch him in anything serious without thinking of Columba. Yeah. Uh, especially since this is around the same era, he looks the same, exactly. Uh, and Columbo is such a such an idiosyncratic character that he's, I, I'm, it just, he's one of those actors that is typecast and it just can't really escape that, that persona that he's kind of associated with so constantly. Yeah. Um, but the good thing is what that made me watch made me want to watch was Columbo. So I watched the first couple of episodes <laughs> of that. And and it's uh, the the thing, if you know Columbo, and I had forgotten this, even though it's a, it's a well-known fact, is that the episodes are movie length. They're about an hour and 20 minutes to an hour and 30 minutes each. Uh, so they're, so it's, it's a serious undertaking and it's, it's a really well done for a seventies TV show. Uh, the first episode was directed by Steven Spielberg uh, so you can, this was before he had made anything that he's remembered by. Probably this is the first big project that he has probably been associated with. This was 1971, I believe. Okay. Uh, the first episode. And I think he came back for another episode later on. I don't remember. But Columbo went through all the 70s and 80s. And I think the last episodes were in the 90s, if I'm not mistaken. Mm, I can't say. Uh, something like that. And I had seen... I had I was not unfamiliar with it. I had seen random episodes occasionally on TV. I was familiar with a character. I have seen him before. I never watched the first episode. So that was really nice. And the first episode I recommended is again if you treat it as a film, it's a really it's a really nice well-done film. Except for Peter Falk, I didn't recognize any of the other actors, but they all did a great job. Well, not even uh, Dick Van Dyke. I think William Shatner shows up for a couple of episodes and Patrick McGoohan. Yeah. Who was Dick Van Dyke in the first episode? Oh, uh, I'm talking yeah. about later in the series. Oh, oh no, I didn't. I didn't get that far. I'm just. I would just watch the first episode. Okay, yeah, there are more. Stars I mean, I just later on. I watched the second episode too, but but I didn't. I didn't proceed through. I'm gonna. I'm gonna proceed through. But it's the kind of thing that you kind of have to take your time with. And once once COVID hit, I just wasn't in the mood for it. So I'm. I had to take a break. All oh, right, I could imagine it being like perfect comfort uh, viewing. It wasn't, but you know what was perfect comfort viewing? So after that, uh, I think Colombo is a little bit more of a attention-demanding show. But one thing that I kind of jumped into straight ahead is sort of the same category was Murder, She Wrote. Okay. Uh, which is the same. And it's I, I also a great show. I don't think it's necessarily a comfort type of a show, but it's, I think, a little bit easier on the eyes. Um. And so I watched several episodes of that. That was part of my comfort in addition to YouTube. Uh, and also, I also dived into, and I'm, I'm sure people know what Murder, She Wrote is about, or you can, I mean, it's a well-known show about this writer uh, who occasionally doubles as a investigator, as a detective, uh, sort of inspired by Sherlock Holmes and a lot of other detective shows. I mean, it's, it's a nice show with pretty good acting uh, by the main character. Uh, Angela something, I think is the Angela actress. Angela Lansbury. Name. Yeah, something like that. I think she shows up in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and maybe... Um, I mean, there have been so many adaptations of that one. Yeah, and 
I I want to say she shows up in uh was it Gaslight? One of the adaptations, but I could be wrong. She sounds like she would be British. Uh yeah, she I think she's cocky. She is American British, you're right, yes. But she is she speaks with a very main accent. Hmm. In uh, she's an Irish British actress and probably um, an Americanized later on in her career, I guess. Oh, okay. she's quite old. She's quite old. I mean, she's still alive, but she's she's older than I thought. She was born in twenty five, nineteen twenty five. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but yeah, it was a, a nice show. And uh, another one that I enjoyed that I watched a few episodes on was uh, Wellington Paranormal, which I've mentioned before in the show is one of the spinoffs of the What We Do in the Shadows film. By Waitika Waititi, I I can never pronounce his name. Or uh, and uh, well, who's the other guy that's involved with that one? Uh, The singer Uh, is it like one half of the Flying Concords? Yeah, but what's his name? Uh, uh, Jermaine or is it Brett? Jermaine Clement, I think. Isn't that his name? Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, Yes. Uh, So is that. And I also, and this was also before COVID, so it was a while ago, I watched the film, the Japanese film, all about Lily Choo Choo. Okay, Shenji Iwai. Yeah. Uh, and I had seen, I had not finished that film, so I actually just, just watched the part that I had not seen. Um, and it's, I, I, don't, I didn't enjoy it as much, and I think maybe because I, I, I watched it in a disjointed manner. I watched part of it before, and another part of it, I finished it recently. Yeah. And it is, if you're not familiar, I'm not sure if you've seen it, it, it is sort of a, a picaresque film, sort of a, the, the nature of the film itself is disjointed. It, it's about the stories of several teenagers who all that they have in common is this fascination with this mysterious uh, singer, Lily Choo Choo. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if it's a real singer. I don't think so. No, as I say, it was a band inspired by the film. Uh, okay. Yeah. But it was created, it was a real band. And it is, it is this very interesting experimental, I don't know if it's right on the verge of an experimental film, but it's about, but like it, you, it utilizes a lot of interesting techniques like message boards and, uh, and voiceover narration and sort of, like I said, disjointed editing and, and mixing of several narratives together by, for the different teenagers that are, that are depicted in the film. So it is yeah. an interesting film. I think, Shunji Iwai is a filmmaker that I, I'm, I've mentioned him before because he's one, he's a lesser known filmmaker that I enjoy. Lesser known in the West, of course. Uh, in, Japan, in, Japan, in Japan, I imagine he's quite popular or reasonably popular. I don't know. Yeah, he's one of the masters. Yeah, I think he deserves more credit, more recognition in the West than he's gotten. I think within sort of um, Japanese cinema circles, he's quite well known. Um, all about Lily Chocho did play. Uh, in on UK television, uh, I think a few of his films have. Yeah, and it's one of his better-known films. Yes. It is one of his better-known films. Yeah, I think like um, April Story is like massive in South Korea. Um, and uh, and he's actually filmed uh in Canada um, a vampire film which uh the name escapes me, but um yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, the murder case of Anna and Alice. Uh no 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 that's that's a sequel to um well is that an animated prequel to um oh, he, the, the thing the thing is the his recent uh, uh I think the movie that you're talking about is just called Vampire yeah Vampire 
but I think his recent output has been perhaps a little less inspiring. He has his most recent movie is called Last Letter. Yeah. Which sounds like Love Letter. And it actually it has uh, Hideaki Anno is one of the actors. Yeah, I'm looking for Hannah and Alice. So that's like one of his most famous films. And um, I, I think that's quite well known amongst cinephiles. Yeah, uh, I, which I've not seen. It's an early performance by Yu Aoi. And um, and Suzuki is like two best friends. Yeah. And I think he's also, I mean, he's well known in Japan. And I think a couple of his assistant directors have also made, have also become well known. A few of his assistant directors have become well known directors. And I think, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the one thing that the one recent film that he did was A Bride for Rip Van Winkle, which I'm, I've been curious to see because the description sounds interesting and it sounds like it's it's more of a return to his earlier experimental style uh yeah i reviewed it for v cinema actually um and uh it's got um an award-winning actress haru kuroki and um disgraced actor goayano um like i suppose you could say it is a return to like an earlier more experimental style like has a sort of disjointed narrative um but I can't remember too much more about it than that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, bottom line is he's a great filmmaker. I think his films need some, even his more conventional films, especially his early ones, I think require, they're a bit of an acquired taste, I think. Uh, even something as simple as Love Letter, which is for the most, or April Story, which for the most part are very feel-good romantic dramas, right? They still have something special about them, I think, that make them uh, different from, you know, your run-of-the-mill, uh, you know, like chick flick, to use that term. Mm, it's interesting. I'm sure, like, quite a few of these have been released in the U.S. Um, I'll have to look oh, they at my have. DVDs. Uh, they, they have, but in terms of, of, terms of, of recognition, he's really not a recognizable name. I, I... Uh, but yes, some of them have been released. Swallowtail Butterfly is the one that I think... If if people know him, they know I, him from that and from all about Lily Choo Choo. Hannah and Alice. I think you're really underestimating Hannah and Alice. Interesting, because I'd never heard of that, so I'm biased because I'm using my own what I've heard as a, as a metric for what other people have heard, and I've never heard of that one. But again, it's take that with a grain of salt. I I just not not heard that one as sort of one of his better known films. Although you might be right, and I'm just not in the loop for that one. Yeah, but uh, he's also did um, like animated films like Baton and uh, Murder Case of Hannah and Alice, so he's willing to experiment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I mean, Hannah and Alice might be more might have been more popular in the in the anime fandom, and I'm just not as as well uh, informed on that aspect on that on that uh, area. Well, Hannah and Alice, the live action version, I, I see quite a few people talking about it quite oh, often. He did the live action version for that one as well? Yeah, and then the animated, oh, I'm sure it's a prequel. I haven't seen the animated film. Okay, all right, all right. Uh, but anyway, so not to dwell further on that, that was our uh, uh, media consumption uh, section of the episode. And uh, we can jump after that, we can jump into our news section. So I believe, Jason, you have quite a bit of news to inform us. Yeah, quite a bit of news, so I'll run through it um, quickly. Uh, yep. So we've got our DVD and uh, Blu-ray releases. So Third Window Films are going to release a box set called Nomohiko Obayashi's 80s Kadokawa Years. It includes School in the Crosshairs, 
The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, The Island Closest to Heaven, His Motorbike, Her Island. And these are all the, uh, being released in the West for the first time ever. And it's a limited edition. Um, uh, 2,000 copies are going to be released. And they go on sale on October 17th. Comedian Films uh, have released Johnny Toe's Exiled, Breaking News, and the Japanese sci-fi Summer Time Machine Blues on uh, Blu-ray in Australia and New Zealand. These are physical releases. Uh, and they came out August 31st. And we have Criterion Collection um, releasing the Infernal Affairs trilogy November 15th. And uh, they've got new interviews with the directors, as well as old documentaries and interviews. Uh, with, uh, this is probably followed by the theatrical, like uh, it's probably the same uh, company that was involved in theatrical release of those of that trilogy, right? Just yeah, that we mentioned last back, time. Yeah, it's coming back into uh, film at Lincoln Center in New York, I believe. Yeah, I mean, that's already gone, I think. That's okay. already happened. So, yeah, Infernal Affairs uh, trilogy release November 15th. And uh, we've got a couple of film festivals, uh, the Autumn Festivals. Uh, Venice Film Festival running from August 31st to September 10th. Uh, I've only uh, read about the Japanese films, but you've got Koji Fukada's Love Life uh, and Kei Ishikawa's Aruotoku. Um, what festival the- was this? Venice Film Festival. Oh. And uh, you've got 4K remasters of Branded to Kill, um, Profound Desires of the Gods, and A Hen in the Wind. At the London Film Festival, which takes place in October, you've got Koji Fukada's Love Life and Sho Miyake's Small, Slow, But Steady, and an Atsushiwata short film. And Toronto International Film Festival has a decision to leave. Um, Plan 75, uh, Broker, and a couple of other Asian films. And Osaka Asian Film Festival has announced, uh, put out a call for entries, and the deadline is November 28th. So any filmmakers uh, with films uh, related to Asia, you know, that is your chance to submit. Uh, it's free entry. And uh, in Australia, we've got the Japanese Film Festival 2022, just the dates and the locations announced, but it runs uh, between November 5th to December 14th. So that was a breathless run through of uh, like uh, releases and uh, festivals. Uh, And finally, we've got awards. Um, So submissions for Best International Feature Film for the 2023 Academy Awards have been announced. Um, Japan has submitted Chie Hayakawa's Plan 75. Taiwan has submitted Lu Yi and Goddamned Asura, and Korea, ha- which we've uh, already talked about in the last episode, has really uh, submitted Park Chan Wook's decision to leave. Are you surprised a bit by the Japanese selection? It didn't feel like I mean, Plan Seventy Five. Uh, just to finish my thought, it's something that's come up in several festivals, right? So it's not a completely unreasonable choice, but I feel like we've run across better or more well-received films from from japan this year uh well plan 75 won the camera door competition for first time directors at Cannes film festival and it's built up quite a following in japan it's had quite a long release in the um sort of mini theater circuit and it's been quite successful with critics so maybe that's t- uh, being taken into account what was uh, the name of that film with the uh, filipino uh, actors uh, well, which uh, which film? Which territory? Japan. 
that we talked about in the festival episodes. Oh, you're talking about Angry Sun. Angry Sun, yeah. I that I don't know. That seemed to be a more uh, critically beloved film. Uh, without seeing Plan Seventy Five, it's hard to tell. So. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and I think Plan Seventy Five had that interesting sort of like premise to it that maybe would make it stand out. So I can understand the decision a little bit. Yeah, it's got a bit of social commentary to it. So uh, yeah. Kind of like maybe uh, it will face stiff competition with Decision to Leave, but it'll be interesting yeah, to see uh, who makes it onto the final shortlist. Uh, so, uh, speaking of the Venice Film Festival, this is not Asian related, but the one film that keeps popping into my newsfeed more than anything else is uh, Darren Aronofsky, The Whale, starring oh. Brendan Fraser. I don't know if you've seen the articles about that. No, I just watched a clip of uh, Brendan Fraser again, uh, standing ovation. Yeah, it's apparently it's apparently the film is apparently great, but his performance is uh, reportedly out of this world. So I'm I'm looking forward to finally to watching that in the cinemas whenever it gets here, which is probably not. I'd heard it was going to get a December release right before the Oscars. I mean, this is a clear Oscar contender without even having seen it. Yeah, it's uh, nice uh, to see him coming back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's. I mean, that's. So I'm looking forward to watching that in cinema whenever it makes it. I did try. I did actually try to go to the cinema one time, but it was right before I was planning to, and then COVID got me, and I wasn't able to. I was going to see the new movie by uh, uh, Jordan Peele, the Alien Invasion movie. I forget the name of that. Uh, nope, nope. So I was planning to see that. I don't know even know if it's in cinemas anymore. If I could still catch it, but it was three weeks ago. Uh, so, but that looked interesting as well. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's still in cinemas in the UK, and um, it's uh, one of the actors in it is Stephen Yun, who we're going to talk about more in this episode. Absolutely, yes. So, so, so I'm, I might, if if it is, maybe maybe uh, uh, this week I can tr- see if I can make my way into the theaters to 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 check that out. But other than that, I think that is it for our news section unless you have anything else to add jason i just raced through a lot um i think all uh listeners will be rewinding just to catch anything of interest (laughs) and i'll i'll post everything on the website so they can just go there one click away and they can just look at the list of news and uh click on the appropriate links and whatnot so shouldn't be a problem Yep. also check out the twitter feed where um i'm constantly retweeting like new releases uh, forthcoming releases and festival news. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So with that out of the way, we can jump straight into our main discussion for the day, and that is, as I mentioned in the introduction, the 2018 film by Lee Chang Dong, Burning, based on a, loosely based on a story by uh, Murakami. So, Jason, as always, why don't you give us a brief plot summary of the film and perhaps a, a summary of what it is been recognized for and what awards it has won. So Burning is a psychological thriller from Li Changdong. It was his first film since Poetry, which was released in 2010. And it came about after the Japanese broadcaster NHK tapped him to adapt uh, one of Murakami's short stories. And the one uh, he chose was a 13-page short called Barn Burning, which is from the collection The Elephant Vanishes. So he's adapted it uh, as He's kept the plot, but he's changed like uh, the 
context and locale, essentially. Um, Burning follow, uh, set in South Korea, follows a young delivery man named Jong Soo. And um, while he's out on a job, he runs into Hai Mi, a girl from his rural hometown. The two strike up a relationship that includes sex and him looking after her cat while she's away on a trip to Africa. So Jong Soo's over the moon because he's got a girlfriend, but whatever expectations of a relationship continuing he has are upended when Hai Mi returns from Africa in the company of a mysterious rich young man named Ben. Uh, who Jong Su seems to think is in competition for Hai Mi. Uh, and then Ben tells Jong Su of his unusual hobby of burning greenhouses. And Jong Su comes to believe that Hai Mi might be in danger. So, this film stars Yu Ah In as Lee Jong Su, Stephen Yun as Ben, and John Jong Seo as Shin Hai Mi. It's what one. A few awards, not as many as I thought it might win. Um, probably like the biggest news was it was uh, selected as South Korea's entry for Best Foreign Language Film at the 2019 Academy Awards. And even though it wasn't nominated, it became the first Korean film to make it to the final nine film shortlist. Which was, I mean, we this is jumping way ahead into our structure, in our episode structure, but that was a crime not for this film not to be nominated. I mean, a uh... I'm, I'm I'm betraying my final thoughts here, but it was a a criminal act to not nominate this film. Anyway, <laughs> please please go on. Cultural vandalism. Um, exactly. It was the it is the highest rated film in the history of Screen International's Cannes Jury Grid. Um, make of that what you will. Um, at the 2018 Cannes Film Festival, it won the Fipreski Prize and the Volcane Prize for Technical Artist. Um, it was nominated for the Palme d'Or, but it lost it to Shoplifters. At the Asian Film Awards, it took Best Director. At the Asian Film Critics Association Awards, it won Best Director, Best New Performer for John Jong So, who plays Jaime. At the 2018 Grand Bell Awards, um, it won Best Film. At the 2018 Blue Dragon Awards, it won Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor for Stephen Yun, Best New Actress for John Jong So, and Best Music. And it's kind of like those are the biggest awards that it won. I was so surprised that it didn't take more. We should point out, however, that if you were someone like me who follows the news around ta- uh, the entertainment news and uh, cinephile publications, all that, this was a very talked about in the critical circles. I don't know if you remember the articles about it. All the top critics was made up several top 10 lists for that year. It was a very highly talked about film. That's why I think a lot of people were surprised when it did not receive that Oscar nomination. And I, I do think that it is because there was a, I think the the committee made the case for we can either include this or shoplifters, not both. Okay. And I think that the same as the can, um, again, that's purely spe- pure speculation on my part. But I think that's what the committee said. We can include the, we've. We already know that we're going to include Shoplifter because that was the next film. The other film that was very, the two foreign films that were highly, highly talked about. There could only be one in terms of Asian films. I think so. I, that's my speculation. And maybe I'm being presumptuous a little bit, but I'm going with it. Why not? And I think Roma was the same year as well, right? Yeah, I think that took the uh, best international That won feature. most of the awards, yes. Yeah. But Roma, I, because of Alfonso Cuaron being so i mean he's worked in the states i think roma was not really treated like a foreign film uh it was treated like a domestic like an american film 
in a different language. Yeah. Um, even though he was nominated for the foreign category, and it won that category too, which is strange. Uh, but uh, but anyway, one thing that I will ask, I usually ask, uh, how did you get introduced to that film, to this film, and all that? And I'll I'll ask that. I'll make the episode a little bit more disorganized today in honor of my state of mind under COVID. Uh, uh, yeah. Just keep- <laughs> To keep things to keep things uh, in line. However, I would like to ask you: Do you think Lee Chang Dong is the greatest uh, di- Korean director living today? Oh, um, I I don't know. I would keep it, keep in mind. I don't I don't know if you've seen his entire filmography. I have several times. I haven't. I have. You've seen at least you've seen his first film. I know that much. I've seen Green Green Fish, Fish. and Poetry. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I will tell you, like, whatever you think of his earlier films, he doesn't have one dud in his filmography. Every single one of his films, from Green Fish to Peppermint Candy, which is one of the greatest Korean films ever. We should cover that at some point in our, festi- in our, uh, ep- in our uh, podcast. Yeah. Then Oasis. Um, then um, what's the next one after Oasis? Uh, any, oh, Secret Sunshine, which won, which was also well received in Cannes, and then, and then Poetry, and then Burning. Not, not one of them is a dud. They're all not only great films, entertaining films, but also films that have been highly, highly received. So that's that's why I'm. That's what is prompting prompting this question is that all the greatest Korea directors they do have duds. Bong Joon Ho, Park Chan Wook, uh, Kim Ji Woon. All of them have one or two films in their filmography that I don't think they're very proud of, or films that just did not get the reception that they deserve. Lee Chang Don does not have that. All of them have been lauded massively by the critical community at the time, and they're still held as fantastic films. And I think that merits him at least a very serious consideration as the greatest uh, Korean director currently living. Well, he definitely doesn't have mainstream cred uh, amongst uh, oh, with audiences. Uh, let me rephrase that. He definitely doesn't have cred with mainstream audiences uh, uh, in terms of like uh, Korean directors when you compare him to Bong Joon-ho and Park Chan-wook. Um, absolutely, they, absolutely. They have a higher sort of... Uh, they have a higher output compared to Lee Jang-dong. And they've experimented across more genres. Absolutely, that, that, that's that's fair. But he's also no stranger to the critical community in the West. Oh no, amongst hardcore cinephiles. Uh, yes, while he doesn't have the popular appeal in the West, and I agree with that. Poetry is not a film that is gonna is gonna make in anywhere near a parasite type numbers in in uh, in Western audiences. It is considered a great film. It won the best screenplay award in Cannes. I think it won best film at the Asian Film Awards that year. Uh, or uh, uh, did it win best film, or did it just win best screenplay there as well? Uh, best director, he won best screenplay and best director. But still, I mean, it's he is no stranger to awards. He's no stranger to to critical appeal, even though he may be a stranger to popular appeal. Yeah, like without seeing more of his films, I can't say for certain. I've seen more Park Chan Wook films, and like the artistry there is just magnificent. Uh, I- Bong Joon Ho's also like of all the films I've seen of his like he exhibits uh, 
also an immense mastery of cinema. Yes, but but I think the my the reason why I kind of I I would like I'm not this is not an answer this is more of a, a thinking out loud type of thing. Uh, why I would like to consider Li Changdong as superior to them is precisely what I mentioned is that he knows precisely what he wants and he never misses. He has yeah. a, he he writes a target. He doesn't make as many films and his films are spaced out quite far apart. For example, since poetry. Uh, he took eight years to make another film. Part of that was because I believe he was involved in politics uh, for a, peri- a period of time. He was also like producing and writing uh, other people's films as well. Yeah, and I think he's made, since Burning, he's made a short. Probably, maybe that's a preparation for his next film. I think usually Korean directors often make shorts in between sort of their features. That's a common thing. That's a common practice in, among Korean actors. Yeah. Uh, so maybe he's preparing for his next film, but that's the thing. It, there's, I think there is something to be said about someone who knows exactly what they want and they just never fall outside their mark. Yeah. Whereas Park Chan-wook, you know, Stoker, you may enjoy that film. It is not a great film. Um, oh, what's uh, Kim Ji-woon certainly has things that he that weren't great. Bon Joon-ho, he also... Uh, well, I guess he maybe, maybe he doesn't have that many duds, but in my opinion, the the host is is an okay film. It's not great. Okja again, it's an okay film. It's not great, uh, but I cannot say that about Lee Chang Don. Every single one of his films is a masterpiece. Of the Lee Chang Don films I've seen, Poetry and Burning are masterpieces. But you know, keep in mind that like um, Bong Joon Ho, for example, is filming in many different countries as well and uh he's uh, addressing similar issues with varying degrees of uh sort of um, exactness he can appeal to a mainstream audience by using comedy by using broad characterization and so forth yeah i mean like without seeing more of lee chang dong's output like what i have seen has been really impressive uh but i can't you know i i don't want to place him anywhere without seeing more yeah, I recommend Peppermint Candy because in my I hold that as the film that kickstarted New Korean cinema. And for audiences who may not be familiar, New Korean cinema is sort of the boom, is considered the era of Korean cinema that has kind of become popular in the West, starting from the late '90s and is arguably still going on. And Peppermint Peppermint Candy was released in 1999, and in my opinion, that is the first film that fits the sort of the uh, the characterization of what new Korean cinema has uh, been all about yeah, in the last 20 years or so. I think that received a DVD release in the UK via Third Windows Films. I'll have to look that up. but It is, and it's been, it's been stre- on streaming services pretty frequently, so, so it's something that has, has not been hard to find uh, throughout the West. Yeah. But here, I mean, here's the, the thing. So you, I mean, I think Bon Joon-ho is a great comparison, but Bon Joon-ho came out the, came out with uh, next year with Parasite and that sort of swept pretty much every award that there was to sweep and also had a, a very broad popular appeal and I I complained about Parasite as being very unsubtle being yeah. very on the nose being you know he hits you over the head with a brick and say here's what my movie is about and uh and I then we could contrasted it with um uh shoplifters which came out the same year as Burning. And Shoplifters, I think, is 
they're very much more subtle, much more, uh, I think, much more understated. But I just can't help but find Korea not fun to watch, somewhat boring, somewhat slow, and somewhat monotonic. His films just blend together for me. And rewatching Burning in preparation for this episode, there, there was just a light bulb that clicked. And it was like, yeah, this is the perfect, this is the perfect middle ground between those two extremes, in my opinion, between the extreme of uh, shoplifters and Parasite, where uh, Burning is a million times more subtle than Parasite. It's, it's, you cannot pin it down to what exactly it is about. It is a, a deliciously nuanced story, but it also has that sort of also a slightly more popular appeal than say than say shoplifters or anything else that Coreda has done. And I don't I don't know if you would agree with that assessment, but that's how kind of rewatching it. I didn't necessarily have that opinion the first time I watched it, but rewatching it this time, it just that that light bulb just clicked that said, yeah, this is somewhat in the middle between those two extremes, and it's it really worked for me. Yeah, um, I should have rewatched Shoplifters. Um, I couldn't even if I wanted to. It would have put me to sleep, <laughs> especially being being more fatigued than usual with with COVID. I did, yeah. Well, with shoplifters, you get a sense that he's treading water because he's addressed these themes and he's um, done stories similar to this before. But it's an incredibly um, well acted um, story. Um, you kind of know where it's going. Whereas Burning is a film that. As you said, it's incredibly nuanced. There's so much ambiguity to it that you keep going back to it again and again and again. Burning um, addresses similar um, themes of like class and exploitation of people and broken families, but it does so in a much more adventurous way. And as I, every time I rewatch Burning, I think to myself, did this film deserve to win the Palme d'Or over Shoplifters? Did this deserve to do better in the awards season? Um, did it deserve to do better in the box office? Because I think um, Box Office Mojo placed it at like 71st of like the top 100 movies in Korea, and it only grossed something like $4 million. I can't imagine Shoplifters grossing. Did Shoplifters gross a huge amount? I didn't check the box office for Shoplifters, but every time I rewatch Burning, I think, yeah, this is, this is like... This is cinema. This is like a film I want to keep going back to. And so there's so much that's interesting about it that it's going to be timeless. And then you yeah, and then you find out that it hasn't done as well as you might expect. And it's really surprising. Yeah. And I think it is Lee Chung Don is one of those directors that I've talked about. And I think despite my uh, slight dislike of Mika, Mika is very good at this too, is utilizing everything, every part of the language of cinema, utilizing the acting, the editing, the cinematography, the the subtle visual hints, the the silences, literally everything that that composes the alphabet of cinema to tell the story. Like, I'm sure you were drawn about, you were very, uh, I think everybody who watches this film is, is fascinated by the main character and how passive he seems, especially in the beginning of the film. And you even question, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I... I at least for the first maybe thirty minutes of this film, I, no way did I believe that this guy can be a writer. Uh, he might be the dullest person <laughs> to have ever worked the earth. I'm sorry, but watching him, I thought, yeah, he's definitely a writer because he procrastinates. He he doesn't sit at a desk and force himself to write, <laughs> but he's constantly observing. He's constantly observing the world, and um, he says stuff like, "The world is a big enigma," and he's taking it all in. 
But as you said, he's really passive. And as an audience, we're aware that this is a mystery thriller. And it's frustrating to watch him come across as really clueless and lacking drive and being like uh, drawn in the wake of Hi, Me and Ben. And uh, like you're watching him like slowly piece together that Hi, Me's in danger. Uh, but like that process of intuiting what's going on is painfully slow. Absolutely. Talking about, you said, you said, did this deserve to win the Palme d'Or? I mean, I would have chosen it, but I can, Shoplifters is one of those films that even though I did not enjoy, enjoy it, even though I, I can, I can forgive that choice. Well, not forgive is not the right words, but I can, I can tolerate it. I can understand it. I can accept it as a, as the, as the choice. Uh, but looking at some of the other films that were in the, in, in Cannes that year, uh, Ash is the purest white, which I have not seen, but it is very highly spoken of. Uh, I don't know if you if you've seen it. No, I have not seen it. Yeah, another one, Asako One and Two, which uh, I watched it recently on your recommendation. I would rewatch that over Shoplifters. Uh, I find that a lot more enjoyable as a film. I I think we've got to take into account. It's kind of like um, in previous episodes we've talked about like the right film at the right time or the film that's got more mainstream appeal. And I feel like um, Corrieda is that director with more mainstream appeal. He's built his cultural cachet with critics and uh, a wider audience outside of hardcore cinephiles. And Shoplifters fits into this sort of groove um, that he's established for himself. It's an extremely well acted. Uh, drama that really um, you know evokes various emotions, um, and people who watch it do come away really moved by it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and watching it the first time, watching Shoplifters the first time, I did, I, I did enjoy, I did not enjoy it, but I did appreciate it. I just can't see myself watching it uh, a second time. But I would like to watch Ash is a Purest White just to see how did that fit into that year's. Uh, but you know, we had. We had several strong Asian films that year. So that was, I think, maybe a good year for Asian cinema. Going back to Burning and how well, even how well Lee Chang-dong just distributes all the elements of cinema without overdoing it. Not only we talked about the main character, who, as you said, he is, he is very dull. He's no way you believe that he can write a successful novel. That's what I meant to say earlier. Not that he's not a writer, because literally every writer that I've met in my life is are the greatest procrastinators. Yeah, uh, in terms of, and I love how he says it whenever someone says, "What do you want to write?" He says, "I plan to write a novel." What is it about? He's like, eh, "I don't know, uh, whatever." That's that's such a dull response, but it is fits so great with his character. Oh, it's like when Ben asks him to describe a metaphor, <laughs> he's just like, "Where's the toilet?" Yeah, yeah, and I think the same sort of mystery that surrounds him surrounds him, me, and then especially Ben. Both of both of them, which are maybe secondary characters in in sort of in a in a very traditional view of how characters fit into a story, but they're just as fascinating uh, and just as mysterious as the main character uh, is uh, Li Jong or Jong Su. For one thing, nothing that Hayami says is is uh, verifiable, right? Well, there's uh, a lot of the characters, um, a lot, there's ambiguity to what everybody says. Um, hi, me. Except Jong Su. Except Jong Su. I'd say he's honest pretty much every time he speaks. Uh, because I think the story is from his perspective. So I yeah. think the camera cannot lie because we are viewing an unaltered, we view the world as he views it. Maybe we can 
there is ambiguity in the interpretation of what he views, but I don't think there's ambiguity in what he says and what he believes. Yeah, whereas Jaime, um, you're constantly questioning um, her stories. Um, and uh, her and Ben are both pushing the narrative forward. In terms of Jaime, she comes out of the past and she approaches Jong Su with this story that uh, he calls her ugly. And um, that, like, uh, that was their last interaction. And um, but, but Jong Su struggles to sleep to, with him. Jong Su struggles to recall that interaction and it's kind of like um his reaction is kind of like um is he being polite and just accepting it or um her sleeping with him it's kind of like a revenge sort of thing isn't it it's kind of like oh you thought i was ugly back then but that's the first thing that you think about but then is it because she seems genuinely as we find out later she seems you know there's that line about him being the only one she can trust yeah these are two very lonely characters they like well, she's financially insecure and like jong su a figure from her past um entering her life uh, must seem like a lifeline because we as we find out later on in the story like she's deep in debt and um she's had plastic surgery to make herself look better but i did wonder if maybe she had plastic surgery to sort of um escape uh the people who are calling for her debt um, there's also the possibility that, you know, having plastic surgery has increased her worth, um, in terms of like, we meet her as a dancer. She's, um, sort of like, um, a, a model you could say. So that's one way she could, uh, get employment. So, you know, through Jaime's character, you can like sort of see critiques of how, um, Korean society is tough for women. Yeah. I mean, it it is, the symbolism could not be more and this is maybe the only obvious part of the film is where she's literally dancing for money in the beginning in her introduction, right? And there, yeah, there's a song called um, Touch My Body. Yeah. So yeah, she's essentially selling herself. Um, and uh, I, you, you know what? I really liked her as a character. Unlike the two male characters, um, there's something pure about her. She, she's like searching for life's big questions, which is why she does that little hunger, big hunger dance. And uh, she went to Kenya to explore it. And um, so like jong Su is very frustrating because he can barely express himself and he treats her badly, whereas uh, Ben takes advantage of others. Um, there's something much more pure to Jaime. And I'm tempted to call her a, a femme fatale because there's something of an opportunistic streak to her as well. Because uh, through meeting other people, she expands her social links and telling stories about her past and maybe uh, uh, fudging the truth a bit is um, allows her to self-mythologize and make herself much more attractive to others while avoiding trouble like debt collectors. Uh, but ultimately, she's a very lonely person um, who fears disappearing. And that sort of foreshadows what happens later on in the plot. Yeah, and one one exercise that I kind of wanted to to do what I was doing while watching this film is for the there are two main stories that are brought into question. Number one is did Jong Su walk across the street just to call her un- ugly? Which knowing how passive he is doesn't <laughs> doesn't sound right. Seems like he wouldn't bother uh, with all that. Although I guess he was a kid. And the other one is the well story, right? Yeah. There's a, a dry well, and Jong Su was can't... allegedly in her house. Uh, Jong Su cannot verify whether or not that well even existed. 
yeah, Jaime claims she fell down it and Jong-su rescued her. But, like, Jaime's mother and sister don't remember well. When Jaime disappears from the narrative, um, Jong-su's mother comes back into his life and she says there is a well. And so, there's, like, there's this ambiguity as to yeah. uh, what's going on with the well. And it helps sort of make Jaime an unreliable narrator. We don't know what's going on entirely with her. But we are, through meeting uh, her sister and mother, we understand that she can disappear from people's lives, which leads into further ambiguity because uh, at some point in the film, you might think, has Jaime been murdered or has she just disappeared to escape her debt collectors? I I mean, absolutely. I agree with all that. But the the one thing that, I kind of wanted to think, like to think about is, okay, let's, as an exercise, assumes that what she's saying is true. What does that say about the character? And now let's assume that it's false. And what does that say about the character? And I don't know that either of those gives a clear answer. I don't think, I don't think Lee Chang-don really wants us to answer that question. I think it's more about the narrative in the moment rather than about the veracity of any of the statements that happen, even both about Jaime and about Ben. It's about, and maybe there's a metafictional aspect to the stories, how the narrative affects sort of like the people, how, how narratives, how, how relationships, how we see people in the world affects our perception of them and our, our treatment of them. So, you know, how, how does it affect the relationship of uh, Jong-Soo and Jaime by her just narrating that story right there in front of him, regardless of whether it's true, I don't even know if that's important. And then the same thing when she says the well story, how does that change Jong Su as a character right there in that moment? And I think maybe that's why Lee Chang Don creates Jong Su as a character that exists purely in the present. At times, we get the impression that he has almost no memory of his past, right? Well, well, he does have members of the past, but it seems like everything about Jaime has disappeared. He doesn't remember her when he meets her. He doesn't remember her calling her ugly. He doesn't remember falling to the well. He doesn't remember if the house even had a well. It's almost as though she might not even be someone he ever met. She's just scamming him from the very beginning. Oh, hey, do you remember me? Like, uh, oh, yeah. And like, he's just being polite by saying no. Of course, that's not the case because her mom confirms her existence later. His mom confirms her existence later on. But it, until that point, it's almost like she she's just scamming him and they've never met before. Yeah, although you could you could say his lack of recognition of her at first is because she had plastic surgery. But um, like, I, like I said earlier, like there's something opportunistic about her and the way she self-mythologizes. Um, and like those stories, as you point out, are... Uh, designed to sort of create a connection with Jong Su to sort of influence him to uh, tie him close to her so he feels like there's uh, something deep to the relationship um, when she says like he's the only person I trust is she being genuine about that or is it just to, uh, like to stroke his ego take that one step further she actually never says that it's Ben that says that yeah Ben admits to feeling jealous. So has she deliberately said that to Ben to make him feel jealous? Or is even Ben telling the truth in that moment? Mm. I th- like, th- 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 this is what's so great about the film. There's so much ambiguity that you can watch it again and again and you're constantly questioning, you know, what's yeah. the meaning behind all of this dialogue? 
that's right. And I, th- and I think that's why I believe that the characters, it's not unlike shoplifters and maybe even unlike uh, a parasite. I think the characters, we're not meant to see the characters as real characters. We meant to see them as symbols. Symbols for what? I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe symbols for a lot of things. But they're not they're not people who exist in a real world, I think, in sort of our modern Korea, even though there are a lot of references to the real world and uh, ways that we can tie them to like a real world that we, the audience, exist. But you can also view them as, as people who exist in this imaginary words and just represent concepts, the concept of jealousy, the concept of class, the concept of relationship, the concept of a million other things that I that who knows what else people may have interpreted this these characters and their relationships as uh, while watching this film. Yeah, I like I, when you said uh, just one one more thing when you gave the summary and you said in it's set in South Korea. I, I I wanted to add that it's just not South Korea; it's the northernmost part of South Korea, right on the border with North Korea. Uh, well, it's uh, Paju and Seoul, so that area. Um. Well, his house is a near shot away from the border, right? Yeah, you can hear propaganda streaming over, North Korean propaganda. Exactly, exactly. But uh, yeah, like um, Lee Chan-dong uh, at like, uh, Q&As and stage greetings has said he wanted to uh, have young characters who are lost in mysteries of life. And like uh, writing um, all of this dialogue and having all of this action, this pact of ambiguity where you don't know... like. Uh, if Jaime can be trusted or if a murder is being committed is part of that. He's like trying to describe like how like the social situation that young people in uh, South Korea find themselves in, like trapped in like a myriad of political and economic uh, uh, um, ties that are really hard to uh, uh, uncouple themselves from. And existential, existential uh, ties, I mean, uh, struggles as well, because he... Uh, the main character doesn't know really where he belongs in terms of his life. He's not his father. He doesn't want to be his father, but he's kind of stuck taking care of the house. Yeah. While while the father in we we never I mean there's an economic component then, but we never really get the impression that he has to do that, right? Uh, it seems to be a self-imposed exile almost uh, in it because he has a part-time job in the beginning of the film that he quits later on apparently. But yeah. he, he supposedly he can afford to live in the city, not in his father's house. But it's never clear exactly why he moves into his father's house. Could be for economic reasons. Could be for any myriad of reasons. Oh, he's just such a passive character that he goes along with it. Absolutely, absolutely. And reading reading the story by Murakami, you get the impression that when they have that, which is almost verbatim dialogue copied into the film. Where he confronts Ben about the barn burning and says, "Well, I, I," he says, "I checked all the barns near me and I didn't see any burning. You must have not burned." He says, "No, yet I burned it. You must be mistaken. You must have missed it." And he says, "Was it close?" He says, "Very close." I don't know that I got this impression from the movie. I got it more from the uh, story. Is that the barn burning is the metaphor for murder? That yeah. the barn he he burned was Jaime, was he me? I think uh, having read the story before going into the film, I was greatly influenced by that. And it's kind of like, oh yeah, this is clearly a metaphor for murder. And um, and in the movie itself, when Ben's talk, like, because Ben's got this, like, serial, like, ostensibly he's a really, really nice guy. But when you l- look a bit deeper into He's like the, the American Psycho. He's like, um, 
uh, what's his, the name Bale. of the character? Christian, Christian Bale character. in American Psycho. He has that vibe. But he has a, he has a god complex. He talks about being omnipresent, uh, being in Africa and Korea at the same time, and, and never getting never getting to to be sad. And where he says, "What do you do? I play." Yeah, I don't feel. It's kind of like I don't feel emotions. And you're kind of like, oh, it's killing the way he gets his kicks. And um, you know, if we take greenhouses to be a metaphor for women and him burning them down, when he describes them as like being eyesores and nobody missing them and the police not investigating, it's really, really sinister. But I, I don't know that Lee Chandong intended to be as obvious. I think it's a little bit more obvious in the story than uh, if you watch the film in isolation. Yeah, yeah. Well, with, like with the story, it's like told in past tense, isn't it? So it's kind of like a yeah. lot more nods to like something strange is going to happen. The narrator's keying you in. When we did the episode on uh, Drive My Car, I, at the question, I hadn't seen Burning in a while, a couple of years, and I said how Burning is probably the least, the most loosely Murakami adapted story of all the Murakami adaptations that we mentioned in that episode. Yeah. However, after I had read the story before, I just didn't remember it. After reading the story again now, again after watching the movie, after rewatching the movie, it actually it's not it's quite faithful. Yeah. Uh, the 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 movie adds to the story quite a few elements that I think separate from it, but for what is in the story, almost all of it makes it to the movie, right? And it's the dialogue is almost verbatim copied from the story. It's the same plot, it's just the ending's different. Yes, and the a few of the elements that make up the characters like the uh the past, like the family drama of uh, Jong-Soo, uh, the South Korean setting, of course, and all that. Uh, I think that was drawn more from William Faulkner's barn burning, I felt. Bringing up the Faulkner thing, I, I've i read barn burning by Faulkner many times, a lot more times than I read Murakami. It's, it's, it's a great, great story. I always enjoyed it. I've always enjoyed Faulkner's short fiction more than his novels. Uh, but I don't. What? What? Where is the Faulkner? I wasn't sure the the where the Faulkner influence was either in Murakami's story or in the movie because obviously Murakami is a great admirer of Western literature. So titling his story "Barn Burning" had to be a nod to Faulkner's story. There's no way that he didn't intend at least some some connection there. And other than the fact that they both involve barns burning, I'm not sure where Faulkner enters into it. Maybe the ending? jong Su and his father. Um, his father um, attacks a village official. Um, you're right, you're right. And then you've got sort of like with the Faulkner novel, the, the son betrays the father. Whereas in the film, you've got the inverse where the son sort of becomes the father and takes on a sort of vengeful aspect, taking on like um, the elite, the power structure. Well, he does betray the father in that I think he abandons his attempts to, it's not explicit in the movie, but I think he abandons his attempts to sign the petition, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's just like everything else he approaches in life. It's like half-hearted yeah. attempt. You see him collecting names and then he just gets drawn into this mystery because like Hai Mi and um, Jong Su become much more influential drivers in his life. Yeah. And um, uh, he becomes his father, but you never get the sense that what the act of the act of violence that he commits at the end is due to pride, because that was what uh, it was said about his father. Right. And we it's it's all great how 
fleet, fleetingly we actually see the father, right? It's just a couple of court hearings and he just never speaks. He's just kind of shown for a few seconds. You've got the solicitor, the lawyer, who says we went over to the Middle East in the 80s. Um, you've got like the photographs of the father in military uniform. And you can imagine he was like special forces because he's got a box of like knives. And in contrast, you've got like Ben, who also takes on a sort of kind of echoes the father because he's got like a box of trophies and he's such a massive influence on Jong Su's life as well. And he's a, a violent character underneath that facade. Yeah, and I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm glad we're bringing it because I think the connections are just hitting me. It's like the stories in, I mean, the the characters in Faulkner's story and Faulkner does this a lot are also symbols. They're not necessarily meant to be interpreted as real characters. And it's, it. I mean, this is not novel by any means. It's been discussed to death. But the the father in Barn Burn represents sort of like the old ways dying out and lashing out, right? Yeah, he's a Civil War veteran. Exactly, and uh, bitter, and uh, felt felt abandoned by the world, and and I think you can actually maybe reach that conclusion about the generation of Jong Su's father, right? They grew up in a dictatorship, in a military dictatorship. They grew up in a different Korea, and the modern Korea, uh, with its sort of like a expansion and westernization and modernization, and maybe more aggressive form of capitalism, is is uh, abandoning them. It's leaving them behind and they have no way to respond to it. He has no way to respond to it except other than violence, right? That's still said. I'm not sure that justification carries on for the son. He's violence for more, pa- more a crime of passion. He's act of violence. Like throughout the film, we're like, this is one of, like Lee Chang Dong is brilliant at social realism and depicting the disparity uh, or the dichotomy in lifestyles, rich and poor. And like you get the sense that Ben is sort of like he's a nice guy, but there's an element of him rubbing his wealth into uh, Jong Su's face, essentially. And um, he can like to such an extent that he almost like he almost admits that he can kill. Like if you you take barn burning as a metaphor for murder. He's saying to um, Jong Su, I, "I can kill with impunity. Nobody can touch me." Um, and like he uh, gets everybody to smoke weed as well. That's illegal in uh, South Korea, and uh, he does it with such impunity. And you could say that maybe Jong Su, throughout this, is possibly getting like it's not indicated in the film um, effectively. Or, or, or strongly, um, but maybe he's uh, jealous in some way. I mean, that's true. You could interpret that way, absolutely. But I think there's also like a, again, an act, a, a personal real jealousy for high me there. Oh yeah, there's definitely a competition, and he sort a of triangle, backs down a love triangle there. Yeah, he yeah. he, and every interaction he backs down in the face of Ben. It's like his confidence is shattered. Like when he lets Ben give high me the ride home. And it's kind of like he feels like he's lost the girl to the rich guy. Exactly. Yeah. The ride home is, is I think, the, part, the obvious sign there that he's feeling jealousy. Uh, that's one, also the one uh, obvious change from the, the story is that in the story, Ben is her boyfriend. She the, the admitted it. The relationship between Jaime and uh, Jong-Soo in the, not, in the story, whatever the names are, uh, are uh, is never as clear. Whereas in the the movie, I mean, they have sex the first time, right? So, 
uh, so it's a little bit uh, more defined. Yeah, I also I think the final act of violence of Jung Soo I think can also be uh, interpreted in a way not necessarily have to do with social class, although maybe everything can be tied to the social class, but it can also be determined as him uh, again another existentialist, an existentialist way in the sense of that's perhaps the first, the only time of the in the film where he's acting and not reacting is perhaps his only moment of agency. Because he's, we talked about how passive he is for the entire thing. He's reacting to things. He's sort of like compelled to do things either through passivity or through lack of willpower. Uh, and that is the only true action that he takes. And I think maybe that's why he takes his clothes off. He feels liberated. He feels like he is in control of his own destiny, even, even if for a brief amount of time. Well, that sort of um, uh, matches up with high meat dancing after smoking weed like and doing that whole a little hunger big hunger dance where she feels liberated in that moment and then a jongsu spoils it by um insulting her absolutely did you get did you get like a when uh ben introduces high meat to his friends and they and uh she's dancing and they all laughing it's like a very subtle thing did you get like a dinner for schmucks kind of vibe where you know, like old story where rich people make uh, befriend poor people just so they can laugh at them or something like that. Yeah, you get the sense. Well, you see it later on with another woman that it's a exactly routine like for he ben. does this. Like, like he just befriends like uh, unsuspecting poor women, poor pretty women, and then he and his rich friends laugh at them. He's got a specific type, and it's working class women who like they may be vivacious, but they're not. They're not. Uh, I, mm. you know they're not aware that they're being mocked and it's like that yeah. moment jong Su in both moments with both women jong Su looks over at ben and he's yawning because this is like a routine for him and uh, everybody else is getting amusement from it and of course we have to compare it to the other films that we that are, i mentioned like parasite compare that to how how much more unsubtle parasite is in that regard like with the smell thing Right, it's it's like a a one ton anvil falling on your head, compared to you know burning. Whereas uh, compared to how the same, arguably the same sort of like disparities handling burning compared to a parasite, like the thing guy complaining with a smell when his daughter is dying or when his uh, son yeah. is whatever is happening in that scene. I forget. Yeah, when I was watching Burning, I truly understood what you were getting at because I was defending Parasite by saying, oh, the, the rich family is a little more complex than we're given uh, credit for. But uh, yeah, Burning does a much better job at this. Yeah, and, and again, I, I love Parasite, I'm not, but I'm just, you cannot help but, but contrast the two, right? It's, yeah. It's it just, uh, and again, some people might not like the subtlety. I am a kind of person who does, and that's, uh, that does, but it, 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 I, I like it because it, it allows more interpretations of the same, the same actions. It, it, it lets you view things like we said. There is a there is a social aspect to uh, to the uh, act of violence between Jung Soo and Ben in the end. But I think there are more ways to look at it rather than just the poor are rebelling and the rich are I don't know the the more simple surface layered interpretation of of that scenario. Was it a revolutionary handshake? Yeah. Um, Faulkner did this sort of thing a lot, like with Barn Burning, where you said the, the, the dad 
is the old guard, the Civil War uh, j- j- a soldier, just like Chung uh, Su Dad is. But, you know, A Rose for Emily, another great Faulkner story. I mean, it has the same thing. It's about it's about the changing of the guard. It's about the past refusing to to move on, refusing, not necessarily in a, in a snobby way. That's what I liked about Faulkner. Faulkner truly understood why the past, why the outdated modes refuse to die and why that generates a lot of anger. And I think Lee Chang Dong uh, understands that. He understands the anger between the different classes, between the different political divides. I think that's why there's a, there's a scene, which I, I think everybody kind of remembers this scene from Burning, even people who don't remember the movie much, is the, the, when Trump is on TV. Yeah. Like a, a, one of the most divisive figures in the last four or five years. Uh, and he's talking about, uh, I forget what he's talking about. Probably the most coherent he's ever been. Uh, that they, they, they found that one clip to put out. But he's talking about his uh, immigration policies. Yes, that's what they're talking about. And it's, you know, Jong Su is probably not even listening to that. That's entirely for the benefit of the, of the audience. But it is about, you know, the sort of like the anger that people feel that can sort of generate the division. And it is this understanding that it's it's really hard to move on from the old ways. Yeah, it's and I, I I love that. I love how he really is able to do that in a way that it doesn't feel over the top, but it also doesn't feel like he's just aimlessly wandering about a topic without really hitting on it. I think he he strikes the perfect balance between subtlety and also really trying to make a, a few cogent points. Yeah. So, uh, Stephen Yun's performance, like, um, we know him as Glenn from Walking Dead. Which I've never seen, although he's arguably one of the most famous characters in the show, right? Yeah, he started out in the first season, and I think he made it to, like, uh, season four or something like that. He gets to the prison. Uh, and I think he gets to the community as well. Um, he lasted quite a while. Um, this, that was the only thing I'd seen him in. He's in community? No, not in community. Um, Rick Grimes makes a community, um, like out of a bunch of houses, like a suburban estate oh. sort of thing. Oh, you're talking to me in The Walking Dead? Yeah, The Walking Dead. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like uh, him and Maggie. Yeah, he, he received, I mean, he received a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, award. Oh, of course, so the Jong Su, the, the, uh, what's his, the actor's name? You are in. Mm. Uh, he also received a lot of praise. Uh, he was nominated. Uh, oh, excuse me. He was nominated for best actor. Can you guess who won that year? Yeah. No. Uh, no. You have to tell me. Uh, Koji Yakusho for The Blood of Wolves, which I've not oh, seen. Okay. Yeah, that's a fun sort of old school yakuza versus cops thriller. Yeah. Uh, so he won best actor for that one, and uh, Burning won best director, obviously best screenwriter, I think. Yeah. But. Um, uh, funnily enough, uh, uh, Stephen Yoon wasn't nominated for that many awards. Mm. Even though I think he is the most impressive actor, I think maybe uh, maybe like the Asian Standard Awards, maybe they didn't appreciate an American coming in and uh, and and swapping the. I mean, uh, getting all the awards. So maybe they they enjoyed the main character, the Korean newcomer, better. I don't know if that's well. That that's interesting because Lee Chang Dong deliberately chosen Stephen Yun as a Korean American. Um uh listening to like some interviews, uh Stephen Yun pointed out that like he, he sounds different to a Korean audience. Uh, apparently he speaks of uh, excessive formality as well. 
And that sort of makes him strange. He's an American. He's an American. He probably spoke Korean with his parents and whatnot, but obviously you you cannot fake a native accent, no matter how good you are. Yeah, so you know, it helps make it, it helps estrange him from a Korean audience. So that, like it's another layer of like there's something off about or there's something different about this guy. Not off, different about this guy. But I wonder maybe what could that have been a reason for him not being recognized, for example. Uh, he was not. Uh, uh, he was nominated for the Korean, like the Blue Dragon Awards, but he didn't win. Mm. But he was not nominated for the Asian Film Awards. He was not nominated for uh, uh, what else? Well, I guess that's it. But he, I mean, there's not that many. Uh, I mean, he was recognized. Okay, so let me kind of take that back. He uh, was recognized some best supporting but I don't actor think he, the Blue Dragon Awards. He was nominated, but did not win. Oh, nominated, yeah. So yeah, well, and then Grand Grand Bell Awards. He was nominated but did not win. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, with yeah, it's a difficult one to call. But I find his performance really um, fascinating because, like, Jaime uh, is very um, Jaime and uh, Jong Su very uh, like in contrast. Stephen Yun has this stillness to the other actors. And stillness sort of exudes a sense of um, like uh, absorbing life and uh, uh, just being present in the moment. And I mean, the self-assuredness, which helps build up the character. Absolutely. I mean, he has that vibe. Even if you did not know that he was an American, he does look like, and even if you don't speak Korean, if you don't notice the subtleties of his accents, I didn't. Uh, even though I've seen so many Korean films, I still couldn't catch that. But he has that quality of a of a rich Korean who spends a lot of his time abroad, right? Yeah. Uh, and and you know he's come back to Korea like only on in the summers and is like driving Porsches and uh, and uh, doing whatever. He just stands out. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I mean, no, I think he was perfect for the role. I I maybe I haven't seen all the other films where. In the uh, appropriate awards, where they get, uh, where the people won over him, but yeah, I think I think he did get at least some recognition. To I think he did get some recognition. I think he was also in Ogja, was he? I'm not sure. Oh no, he, I think he was. Yeah, he talks about work with Bong Joon Ho. Yeah, that was the year before. That was 2017. Again, I don't get how that how many people like that movie. It was. I, I I hated that movie, <laughs> but yeah. uh, a lot of people like it for some reason. But I think he was there. He had like a brief cameo. Very, yeah. He was uh, he was the, uh, one of the animal rights activists, right? Yeah. So he he did. I mean, a very small role, but he was there nevertheless. And I think he is he was. I think he was great in the one film that he produced. Of course, the uh, recently that he did, um, that he was the main character. Oh, the Korean American uh, yes. family setting up. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He's also worked I with he was... Bong Joon Ho uh, on Mickey Seven as well. What was that? Uh, Bong Joon Ho's uh, next film, which is partly, I think, it's partly set in London, partly oh, set in America. Yeah. But uh, but that one it was called Minari. The one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. he was also a producer of that that one, although not. It was directed by a Korean American director, I think. Uh, but yeah, it was a great film. You know, nothing groundbreaking, but I think really great drama about very, very, and he was also a fantastic 
uh, a fantastic performance in that one. There's yet another one who I consider to be an American film, but it's just in a different language, not not a foreign film. Even though he was nominated for foreign film in the foreign film category. Yeah. No. Um. Did you like? I got this. There's this one scene where Jong Su's tailing him, and uh, you uh, he's in the gym. Stephen Yun's character is in the gym, and I just had this weird connection with the third man, where um, Holly and uh, Lime uh, Harry uh, are both in the Ferris wheel, and like Stephen Yun's looking down on the street, and Jong Su's there. And like, yeah. uh, I just had this flashback to like the third man where, um, um, oh, uh, uh, I, I know what you're talking about. I, I, yeah, I, I like have a, a vague would, idea. Yes. Would you, uh, would you, would, would anybody notice if you snuffed out any of those dots, any of those moving yeah. dots on the ground? I that did. Uh, I did. I mean, I didn't make that connection, but it definitely that was a very ominous shot on Stephen Yoon. Yeah. Uh, as he stops, like he's on a treadmill, I think. And then he stops and his gaze slowly moves down. And yeah. we have no idea how, if he can see outside or if he's just seeing a reflection of himself. We have no idea. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, he may have seen uh, Jong Su staring up at him. How, how could he not have seen Jong Su in that beat up white van that he keeps tailing him in? Oh, uh, during those, probably he has seen him. Or, or when he's, uh, Steven Yeun is in that lake. And then the shot yeah. and Jung Su is following him. And then we cut to a wide shot and we realize how really close they are. Yeah. But like that scene in the gym links back to like Ben's God complex. And maybe he feels. Yeah, absolutely. Like a, a sense of invincibility, which is what like the ending is uh, a bit of a surprise, I suppose. Like, how did you interpret the ending? Do, do, do you think, do you think Ben deliberately went there? Um, Wanting to taunt Jong Su, and or did you think he expected uh, to be attacked? I, I, I think I think both interpretations are valid. Like I said, I don't think Lee Chang Don made this with an answer in mind. Yeah, uh, I think both interpretation, and I think that's the the hard, the difficult part about analyzing this film is that you have to sort of operate on multiple levels simultaneously. Uh, Stephen Yeun's character, so Ben, is. Uh, Again, his name is Ben. Again, a foreign name, right? That's yeah. another indication of of uh, that. I think pairs nicely with Steven Yeun as a choice for that role. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to. I mean, uh, for the things that we talked about, Jong Su, what it may represent for him. But other than that, I'm not sure how we what interpretation we can put on Ben's motivation for going to that meeting. I think the simplest way to look at it is he just did not. He was so arrogant that he did not actually fear. Jong Su at any point that he might act rashly, yeah, which is kind of like a god complex sort of thing. Absolutely. The other thing is, you could also interpret this that he knew that eventually that would happen, and he kept taunting Jong Su until it did happen. As a again, this is entirely a metaphor. We we cannot expect to believe that a person was unless he was suicidal or something, but as a metaphorical, he was, it didn't matter to him. It was immaterial that he actually got stabbed it's because he still had to have power over Jung Su until the very end. Hmm. And he's controlled him. And even that was an act that he, even though I just talked about that being an, a, a moment of agency for Jung Su, it could also be interpreted as being the complete opposite, being Ben controlling Jung Su until the very end. And actually that you mentioned the tailing, that could also be seen as 
as a band dragging John Sue the entire time, like a rope that's tied between their cars. And yeah. Ben gets to decide where he goes, and Jung Soo is just being dragged along aimless uh, chases, aim- aimless following uh, sessions. Yeah. That he just has absolutely no control over it. And the ending could be interpreted both ways. It's this finally Jung Soo cutting the rope, or just another act, a final act of uh, ownership from Ben to Jung Soo. Again, I don't know. I don't really know. Or another interpretation, um, which I've seen uh, and uh, listened to other people making, is that this is all in Jong Su's imagination. That, like, uh, after meeting Ben, he's inspired to um, create a serial killer narrative. It pairs well with um, the Kim Ji Woon film, A Bit of Sweet Life. Is this all real or is it made up? So, I think, I mean, Every time where someone brings in a, a, a narrative of, oh, the ending is in the character's head, I always tend to scoff at that off uh, yeah. a little bit. Uh, because, you know, every movie you can have that interpretation, right? Yeah. Anything can be in anybody's head. Uh, however, we do see uh, b- right before that, the final act that we see jong Su perform is he's sitting in Haimi's apartment. And he's writing. And he's writing. Yeah. Finally. Finally. <laughs> After so much procrastination. Exactly. He's writing. And maybe that, I suppose it, it, it is a valid thing to say that that is his, his fictional ending or his fictional response to Ben's character that he cannot own him. He cannot have his vengeance in the real world. He's too powerless, but in his own fictional world, he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. But I think that may, could be valid. Absolutely. And that's why, like, the first half of the film is meandering. It, it can feel meandering as you get all, uh, as, like, Jong Su's procrastinating and he's dragged along in the wake of Jaime and Ben. And then, like, the second part of the film has a more of a thriller structure and he's much more of an active agent. And it turns out that it's all part of a novel he's writing because he's been looking for an idea and Ben's entered his life and Ben's like, why don't you write about me? And Jong Su's like, yeah, why don't I write about you? I'll write about killing you. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and that's no, well, we, uh, that line is also repeated one more time because I think, I think it's interesting, the parallel about his father, right? Yeah, he's such an interesting guy. Exactly. When they have that conversation with the lawyer, he says, write about your father. He's such an interesting guy. Uh, so it, another, another way to look at it could be the sort of like the hunger that so- Jong Su has to be an interesting guy and he just can't be. So he's searching for these interesting characters. Yeah, that he just he he cannot be an interesting character. He cannot. He doesn't have the power to either be one or conjure one up from thin air. So he must actually just roam the streets and, uh, until he uh, encounters one. Well, the father dominates Jong Su's life enough to drag him back to the farm, and then Ben starts dominating him. And there's these weird parallels between the two. Um, Absolutely, that Jong Su's caught between. Another thing that I think is often understated in this film is the cinematography, which I think is really great. Uh, it, it, the, the, Lee Chang Dong is subtle about it. He doesn't linger on like nature shots or country shots, but whenever he does, they're always beautiful and they're always really well catered. Yeah, like the dusk dance that Jaime performs. Yeah, or, or when uh, Jong Su is searching for Barnes various times in the film. Yeah, yeah. Or like when he's walking back to like the family farm and it's raining and he's soaked. Yeah. Uh, yeah, cinematography was done by Hong Kyung-pyo, uh, who's worked on Guns and Talks, Ilmer, 
Save the Green Planet, The Foul King, The Wailing, Mother, Parasite, and Broker. Oh, wow. So there's quite a few uh, credits, like some of the most important films in Korean cinema. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the one, uh, and this is a bit funny, but the one when he's finally killing Ben at the end and he's taking all his clothes, it starts snowing, right? It's freezing. Uh, the one thing that I kept thinking in that scene is, I hope he's left the air conditioning on on his car because it's going to take a while for the car to heat up. So hopefully he'll get inside and it'll be warm. I don't know. That thing looks like it's got so many bangs and dents. It's going to let the cold wind in. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. That Yeah, so it could be like an uncomfortable ride home all the way. Yeah. Uh, all the entire way. But he, he does he does that final act with his father's knives. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's another. There's so much. There's so much in this film. Like you could always, always discover more, think about it, ponder things, discuss, and new things will pop up. Like so many new things popped up in this discussion that I just hadn't necessarily thought or hadn't thought much about. It's just such a rich, rich film. That's why I, I enjoyed so much. And that's why I asked, is Lee Chang-dong the greatest director in Korea? And I think he might be. I think he might be. I don't think he is the most popular director. I don't think he's the most commercially successful director although he's done well for himself it's his movies are not are not unsuccessful commercially it's just not not to the degree of some other directors but i think in terms of just sheer quality and depth i think he might be the greatest director of uh of of south korean cinema yeah his mastery of like all the visual elements like the story elements the sound it's just fantastic Absolutely. And I strongly recommend you check out his other films because they're all so great. Like I said, there's not a one dud in it. And it's not, there isn't even one that you can say, okay, that was good, but it was not great. No, they're all great. They're all highly acclaimed. They're all highly, uh, well, accolades can vary depending on one time. Some of his early films did not receive the same amount of accolades simply because Korean cinema was, flew under the radar relatively often. Yeah. Uh, but they're all worth it. Peppermint Candy, Oasis is a very interesting film. They're a very daring film, a very controversial film, too. Uh, it's about the relationship of, uh, of two handicapped, uh, of two disabled person, people. Yeah. Uh, uh, but anyway, so uh, we talked about this. We mentioned it several times, and I think probably our listeners might already know the answer, but or maybe not. But do you think this film deserved the awards and recognition that it got. Do you think it deserved less? Do you think it deserved more? Burning was robbed. <laughs> Lee Chang Dong was robbed. He should it should have swept like awards. Like as listeners will will already know from listening to what we've been saying, like there's so much to this film that it demands that you keep going well, not so much demands, people will want to keep going back and looking at it again and again and again and exploring it from different angles. And I think that's what you want uh, with a film, that it will keep exciting and intriguing you in all these different ways. And the mastery with which he uh, tells this narrative, like, like he takes the original short story and makes it something a bit, uh, like even though it's faithful to the short story, uh, he makes it his own as well. It's just really impressive. I think it should have won more awards and it should be much better known. Yeah, I think it should have at least been nominated for the Academy Award. Um, maybe it should have won more at the Cannes. I didn't win any of the major awards in Cannes. It won the Fureski Prize, right? Yeah. And uh, let's see. So Shoplifters won Best Palm d'Or. Again, I, I can understand that. The grand prize of the jury was won by Black Klansman by Spike Lee. An enjoyable, an enjoyable film. I'll 
I'll go on record say that I enjoyed it more than some people, but grand prize of the jury, I don't think so. Mm. Uh, it just it didn't have that. I mean, it's a socially relevant film at the time. Nobody talks about it anymore, and I think, I think it was uh, maybe the grand prize of the jury should have gone to Burning. I think that would have been the fair one. And then the other prizes, I I haven't seen all of those films. So, best director was won by Cold War, uh, by Pavel Pavlikovsky, which I have not seen. I did not see that one, but I saw his previous film Ida, and that was yeah. a great film. Uh, I I've heard many good things for Cold Wars, uh, so. That's fine. If, if 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 I'm sure it's a great film. Uh, yeah, I would agree with everything you said. It's uh, I think uh, I, I'm I'm happy with the recognition that it got because it did get recognition. It didn't fly under the radar. It was well received. It made a bunch of top ten lists from critics, but it definitely deserved more. And I think it's just that's that's all you can say about it. It deserved more. It didn't get to, but it is a film that I think will be revisited by cinephiles for years to come. Yeah. Hopefully, maybe its reputation will increase a little bit. Uh, sadly, I don't think it's the kind of films, the kind of film that is going to have a Blade Runner effect, where like years from now, someone's going to discover it and and like and uh, give it a reawakening. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's just going to be one of those films that is appreciated by cinephiles, maybe the occasional Asian cinema viewer, but it's probably that's where it's going to stay. Yeah, I can see that happening. All right. Uh, so I think that's it for our discussion of Burning. Uh, we both agree that it's a great film. We both think that it deserved more than it got, but it still it got a good deal of recognition, so that's good. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to close with, Jason, before we end the episode? Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed listening to the film and uh, uh, discussion. And uh, if anybody has any different interpretations, uh, please let us know via Heroic Purgatory website or the Twitter feed. Absolutely. So for next episode, episode we will talk about the Taiwanese-Chinese Hong Kong production, The Assassin, released in 2015. Until then, if you have any comments, uh, questions, suggestions, uh, please feel free to visit us on our website, heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com. And make sure you keep up with our Twitter at Heroic Purgatory, all in one word. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. Thank you.